Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, hoping to take control of your health. And today we are joined by Mike Benz. I suspect many of you may not be familiar with him, but he is the executive director for the Foundation for Freedom Online. And he has extensive experience in technology. Uh, and I'll let him elaborate on that because I, I couldn't recall it all specifically. And uh, he's worked in the government, actually uh, worked with the Department of Housing and Urban Development and progressed uh, to the State Department. And he's played some interesting roles there in censorship, which is going to be the primary focus of our conversation today. And uh, I think it's going to be very enlightening. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Mike. Thanks for having me, Doctor. All right, so maybe you can... Uh, elaborate on your extensive tech, tech history and uh, how you were able to merge it with uh, with in a, in a political vein. Certainly. So I started off as a corporate lawyer representing tech companies and media companies before joining the previous administration. Uh, as you mentioned, I started off in, in HUD as a speechwriter to um, to Dr. Ben Carson and also advised on uh, economic development policy there. Uh, I then went on to be a speechwriter for, uh, for President Trump, uh, particularly on technology and national security issues. Uh, and then I went to the State Department from there uh, and where I, my technical title was Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Communications and Information Technology. But that's a long way of saying I ran the cyber desk at state, meaning all things having to do with the internet and foreign policy. Uh, I both uh, sort of helped uh, on, on the policy formulation and on the negotiation side. And this is it toward the end of 2020, which was a really fascinating time to witness the merger in many respects of big government and big tech companies themselves. You know, I, I uh, had, had always grown up I think like many Americans with a belief that the first amendment protected you against government censorship. And, uh, as sort of a, you know, a generation that was very much the child of, of the internet, um, to the, the terms of engagement that we had enjoyed from 1991 when the World Wide web rolled out, um, until 2016, the sort of the election in, in the U S and Brexit in the UK, uh, which is really the first political event where the election was determined in many respects by momentum on the internet. Uh, there was that 25 year sort of golden period where the idea of being censored by a private sector company, let alone the government was considered something to me very deeply anathema to the American experience. Um, what I witnessed at the state department uh, seeing because you know, I was at the desk, basically, that Google and Facebook would call when they wanted favors abroad, when they wanted, uh, you know, American protection or American policies to preserve their dominance in Europe or in Asia or in Latin America. And the, the U.S. government was doing favors for these tech companies while the tech companies were censoring the people who voted for the government. 
it was a complete betrayal of whatever social contract typically underlied the public-private partnership. Couldn't agree more. The uh, it was a interesting time, and you know that's when I really got online was in the late '90s, rather, and uh, enjoyed enormous freedom and had a, a really first mover advantage in many cases because there weren't any people in health in there, and I developed a wide following as a result of that. But but 2016, the hammer came down, but it was happening before then, especially because there was a collusion with with the big industries like pharma, which is like one of my biggest <laughs> nemesis, but they would hire front groups and essentially establish discrediting campaigns. So it wasn't widespread centers like we have now, which just is just exponentially exploded, but it was still present. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know tech very well, and it's just a really grateful to have you as an insider on the scene to help share some insights with us. But, um, Ostensibly, the expansion of censorship started after post-2016, but you can make a strong argument that, and I, and I really am uh, greatly looking forward to your insights on this, but you can make an argument that the internet was funded by the government and the national security state, 1968 and DARPA. And... I am wondering, and they gave us this this window of freedom. I mean, and, and I, I think really the internet is way most everyone knows it. You mentioned ninety one is when the World Wide Web, Web started, which is the graphical user interface. But most people didn't get that till closer to ninety four, ninety five, because it was just out of CERN and migrated forward. But um, I'm wondering if you believe there was this foresight and this planning in the, the security state to sort of like seed, seed the garden and let it grow. And they knew they were going to take over control at all time. And they just, and yeah. it just happened to occur in 2016. I mean, it wasn't like they, the, the light bulb hit up. Oh, maybe we should do this. No, they, I think it was in their plan, but I'm, I'm really curious as to what your perspective is. Well, that's, that's a, a fascinating uh, topic. Um, and I, I totally agree with, with the way you set it up. Um, one of the things in my own journey to try to understand what was even happening at the State Department um, was, you know, a lot of people come into the uh, trying to understand what's happening with internet censorship by saying, well, we had this free internet. And then, it, and then suddenly there was this age of censorship <laughs> and the national security state got involved at the censorship side. When you retrace the history, what's especially fascinating is that internet freedom itself was actually a national security state imperative. Uh, this is, I, I sort of try to talk about this topic by, by doing exactly what you just did, by mentioning that you, the internet itself is a product of a, a counterinsurgency necessity by the Pentagon to manage information during the 1960s, um, particularly to aggregate social science data. And then it, you, it was privatized not by just unleashing it on the on opening it up to all uh, all comers in the, in the private sector. It was it was handed off from DARPA to the National Science Foundation, and then went through a, a series of, of universities on, on the infrastructure side. And then right out the gate in 1991, you had this you had the you had the Cold War um, coming to an end, and then simultaneously you had this profusion of Pentagon funded 
internet freedom technologies. You had things like uh, like virtual you know, VPNs, uh, encrypted chat, Tor. All of the early internet freedom technology of the 90s was funded by the Pentagon, the State Department, and developed by the intelligence community, uh, primarily as a way of using internet freedom as a means to uh, help dissident groups in foreign countries be able to develop a pro-U.S. beachhead there because it was a way to evade state-controlled media. You know, if we wanted to increase our influence in China or Iran or in, in many countries, countries that were developing the Internet, it, this was basically an insurgency tool for the U.S. government in the same way that Voice of America and Radio Free Liberty and Radio Free Europe were tools of the CIA in the Cold War to beam in uh, uh, basically pro-U.S. content uh, to populations in foreign countries in order to sway them towards U.S. interests. It was a way of managing the world empire. The Internet served the same purpose, and it couldn't be done if it was called a Pentagon operation. It was called a State Department or CIA operation. But all of the tech companies themselves are, pro are, are products of that. Google started as a DARPA grant Mm -hmm. uh, by uh, that was obtained at Stanford by Sergey Brin and Larry Page. And in, in 1995, they were part of the CIA and NSA's massive digital data program. They had their monthly meetings with their CIA and NSA advisors for that program, where the, 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 ex the express stated purpose of it was for the CIA and NSA to be able to map so-called birds of a feather online. Mm -hmm. There was this before the social media boom it, from 2004 to 2006, which is really when all the major, well, other than I guess TikTok, I suppose, but Facebook came out in 2004, YouTube 2005, Twitter 2006, it, smartphone 2007. Excuse me, excuse me for interrupting, but Facebook came out, I believe the day before or the day of that Facebook started, it was one of the, was it the NSA? LifeLog. Life it, yeah, it was Life the, the Pentagon program. Yeah. Oh, it was the Pentagon. Okay. I couldn't recall. But they, it was it the, the same day. Then the next day, Facebook started. Right. It's very strange. Um, but it, with with Google, it's it's in a way. Uh, I, I was I was. It's fascinating to think about what was done to you and what was done to so many people who tried to simply discuss the public health. Uh, you know, event of our of the century, um, th uh, because you had this early intelligence community desire to track political birds of a feather in the private sector on 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 the internet. At the time in 1995, it was just forums and um, and blogs, but these were highly influential abroad for political groups uh, to be able to mobilize. This is before they were mobilized on Facebook for the Arab Spring and in other revolutionary events. Uh, but this idea of having the intelligence community map political birds of a feather so that they can be mobilized or neutralized is something that came back, uh, you know, is originally done, justified in the name of counterterrorism. Um, and now, on the foreign side. And with the pandemic, it was used for simply controlling public discourse on the domestic side. It turns out that exact same technology for doing so 
uh, an artificial intelligence technique called natural language processing, a way of of aggregating everyone who believes a certain thing online into a online community on the basis of the words they use, the hashtags, the slogans, images in a database, emerging narratives, uh, all, all manner of, of metadata affiliations. All of that can be aggregated to create a topographical network map of what you believe in and who you're associated with so that it can all be turned down in a fast, precise, and comprehensive manner by content moderation teams because they're all birds of the same feather. The fact that that grew out of the U.S. national security state, which is which is running the show essentially today, to me is uh, says that there's a, a continuation between uh, the internet freedom and internet censorship. They simply switch from one one side of the chessboard to the other. Can Can you elaborate on the term national security state and what that comprises? So when I talk about the national security state, I personally refer to the uh, the set of you know what are what are called uh, you know, the institutions upholding the rules based international order. You know, is what's often referred to. But but I, I mean domestically, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the intelligence community. You know, the seventeen intelligence agencies. Um, you can throw in DHS and maybe some aspects of of the DOJ. But what you're what what I'm referring to there are the ostensibly foreign-facing protection, uh, um, U.S. citizen protection uh, uh, purposed uh, departments in the U.S. federal government. But even though that's just three departments, essentially, the Pentagon, the State Department, and, and the IC, um, the Pentagon itself has a larger budget annually than every other federal department combined. Uh, you know, we, those three agencies manage America's world empire and have since the 1940s. You know, the, the, the CIA was created in 1947 under the national, under the national security act. Um, it was created for the purpose of having a cloak and dagger mechanism for the, to simply do things the state department wanted to do, but the state department could not get caught doing because of diplomatic um, consequences of election rigging, assassinations, you know, media control, bribery, subversion, um, all everything that, but it's essentially a, our modern intelligence community grew out of this uh, sort of sisterhood between the State Department and the Pentagon. And so those three stools to me, none of them are supposed to be able to operate domestically. But in a sense, they really control domestic affairs because they, their, their power has expanded so much uh, and they, that they've developed a, an extraordinary laundering apparatus to be able to fund international institutions that then boomerang back home and effectively control much of domestic political affairs, including discourse on the Internet. Yeah, it seems there's been a gradual shifting or justification uh, for the censorship and many of the strategies that they're using to protect us domestically against foreigners. So they've turned it uh, on us here, the, the same strategies and the same justifications. Maybe you can walk us through how they how, how, how that's occurred. Is yeah, that, so that's a big central part of what's going on. Sure. You know, so um, 
just in terms of how the how the government got involved in censorship or how the national security state got you know switched from from freedom to censorship is sure Sure. yeah so in a way so there's the u.s national security state and then there's sort of the transatlantic one involving nato the story of government involvement in uh western government involvement in internet censorship really started after the 2014 crimea annexation uh which was sort of the biggest foreign policy humiliation of the Obama era. These these sort of uh, Atlanticist uh, uh, school of, of foreign policy uh, was deeply inflamed by by this event and blamed the fact that there were these breakaway uh, uh, Russia supporting entities in eastern Ukraine and in Crimea on a on a failure to penetrate their media and. Uh, and this idea that hearts and minds were being swung towards the Russian side because of pro-Russian content online. NATO then uh, declared this doctrine of, of so-called hybrid warfare. This idea that Russia had won Crimea, not by a military annexation, but by winning uh, illicitly in a sense, the hearts and minds of Crimeans uh, through the use of their propaganda and the doctrine of hybrid warfare born in 2014 was this idea that war was no longer a kinetic thing. You know, there hadn't been a kinetic war in Europe since World War II. Instead, it had moved subkinetic into the hearts and minds of the people. In fact, NATO announced a doctrine after 2014 called From Tanks to Tweets, mm-hmm. where it shifted its focus explicitly from uh, kinetic warfare to uh, to social media opinions online. Now they didn't get the uh, the impetus to, that started off in Eastern Europe, uh, in the in the the Balkans, in Ukraine, in Germany. Um, but when Brexit happened in June two thousand sixteen, uh, UK, which anchors the NATO the the Europe side of the the NATO uh, security state, uh, the Brexit was blamed on Russian influence as well. And so all of these institutions that argued for control over the internet in Eastern Europe said, well, now it needs to come. Now, you know, now it's an all Europe thing. When Trump was then elected five months later, explicitly contemplating the breakup of NATO, uh, uh, all hell broke loose. This idea that we need to censor the internet went from being something that was touchy and, uh, and novel in the in the view of of Pentagon brass and State Department folks, to something that was totally essential to uh, to saving the entire rules based international order that came out of World War II. And at the time, the reasoning was Brexit in the UK was going to give rise to Frexit in France, uh, with with Marine Le Pen and her movement there. With Matteo Salvini was going to cause Italy exit in Italy. There was being Brexit in Greece. Exit in Spain, and the entire European Union would would come undone just because these right wing populist parties would naturally vote their way into into political power, and they would vote for essentially working class uh, uh, cheap energy uh, policies that would make them more closely aligned with Russia naturally because of the cheaper oil prices or cheaper gas prices, and that this was going to then suddenly you've got no EU, you've got no NATO, and then you've got no Western military alliance. So from that moment after Trump's election, 
immediately there was this diplomatic roadshow by U.S. State Department officials who all thought, thought they were getting promotions on in November 2016. They all thought they were going to get promoted from the State Department to the National Security Council. Turns out they all got fired because someone with a 5% you know, chance of winning, the New York Times said, the day of, ended up winning that day. And they, so they all took their international connections, their international networks around the Atlantic Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, this, you know, the, the entire the sort of think tank, quasi-intelligence, you know, quasi-military, you know, government-funded NGO soup. Uh, and they did this international roadshow in, starting in January 2017 in order to convince European countries to start censoring their internet so that so that there would be new rules of the road in the private sector that would that be necessary as a matter of market continuity. Out of that came NetsDG in, in Germany, which which introduced a necessity of artificial intelligence powered uh, social media censorship. And all of that was essentially spearheaded by this network of State Department and Pentagon folks who then used their own internal folks in the government to to uh, procure government grants and contracts to these same entities and then uh, and then eventually they all rotated into those those tech companies to set the policies as well interesting so um, then eventually morphed in, so they 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 established this infrastructure it sounds like primarily based uh, on the surprise election of Trump when all these veterans that were ready to be plugged into the National Security Council had to bail ship and then go internationally to right to to, it, to catalyze this this an international response that eventually was is quite cleverly for for COVID uh, in the late you know 2019 because uh, it was all set up right and what I would say is those veterans. Um, we're not alone. Uh, it was not a, a uh, the full story is not just sort of the shadow, uh, you know, shadow security state in exile. The fact is, is the Trump administration never had control of its own defense department, state department or intelligence community. It was the intelligence community that essentially drove uh, his first impeachment that drove a two and a half year special prosecutor investigation that rolled up uh you know, 12, 12 to 20 of, of Trump's closest associates. Um, if you, had the, you had a you had a chief of staff there who was who was hiding the the military figures from from the from the government. You had a State Department that I mean, the, the, the careers at, at state threatened the political appointees uh, from inside. I, I experienced that myself. Uh, this this permanent aspect of Washington with unfireable careers in high places um, combined with a sort of turf war in the GOP between the sort of populist right and the sort of neoconservative right, with the neoconservative right having many well-placed Republicans in the Defense Department, State Department, and IC uh, to thwart um, the previous president's uh, uh, agenda there, uh, allowed this sort of uh, political network in exile on the on the censorship side to work with their allies within the government to create these censorship beachheads. So, for example, th that's how they created the Department of Homeland Security's and really the, the U.S. government's first uh, permanent government censorship 
bureau in the form of this entity called called CISA, which is supposed to just be a cybersecurity entity. But then they said that uh, anything that uh, that when, undermines when public confidence. What was that found in 2018? Yeah, November 2018, right ahead of the 2018 midterms. Um, and, and this institution, this is a DHS cyber, it was, it was done because of media and intelligence community laundering of a never substantiated uh, uh, claim that Russia had uh, had potentially hacked the 2016 election and hacked the election machines or, or voting software or might be able to do so in the future. And so we need a robust uh, armed to the teeth DHS unit to protect our cybersecurity from the Russians. Uh, after the Mueller probe ended in June 2019, DHS, this 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 unit, CISA within DHS, which had set up all of this, which is only supposed to do cybersecurity, they, it's the mission creep of the century. What they did is they said, well, if you squint and look at it, uh, discourse online is a cybersecurity threat because if it undermines public faith or confidence in our elections and it's done using a cyber nexus, i.e. social media posts, then that's a form of cybersecurity threat because democracy is essential to our security. And so you went from this sort of cybersecurity mission to a cyber censorship bureau, because if you tweeted something about mail-in ballots uh, in the 2020 election, that was deemed to be a cyber attack on critical infrastructure, i.e. elections. When they got away with that in 2020, DHS then said, well, you know, if you squint and look at it, public health is also critical infrastructure. So now DHS gets to direct social media companies uh, to, um, to censor opinions about COVID-19. Then they they work their way into saying anything you say about financial systems or financial services, about the Ukraine war, about immigration. Uh, it got to the point where by late 2022, the head of CISA declared that cognitive infrastructure is critical infrastructure. So there, there was no limit to it. And then all of this only really started to get undone when uh, when the House flipped in in November and the Twitter files came out and Elon Musk acquired Twitter. And suddenly you had a breaking of the social media phalanx uh, with, with Musk's acquisition. You had a sort of sleeping, I, I won't say giant, but you had a sort of sleeping component within the GOP that's, that seemed to mobilize politically. And, uh, and, and then you had uh, public awareness through the Twitter files that all undermined the government sort of public support but it's very much still there. In fact, being funded by the same entities that were once supposed to be for internet freedom, like the National Science Foundation. Interesting. So, you know, you're really very well versed in literate and technology. And I'm wondering if you can comment on the evolution of technology and facilitating their ability to, to radically improve in the quality of censorship that they're doing. And I'm thinking specifically of artificial intelligence right. more recently, late last year with the generative AI models. And mm -hmm. uh, so maybe you can describe that. And then I'm particularly also interested in your take on what might evolve in the near future because of this, because this technology, as you well know, improves exponentially. It doesn't improve. Uh, it's the opposite of exponentially. Uh, non-exponentially, I can't recall the term, but um, 
and that is a, a concept that most human brains can't fully comprehend. Doctor, this is this is this is so uh, perceptive of you to 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 highlight that because I consider the technology side of this to be one of the most terrifying and existentially compelling um, dramas of of our era. I actually came into this space, um, the the censorship space. You know, I was representing tech companies as a lawyer, but I I. I'd, I'd watched the 2016 election with some fascination, um, but wasn't really gripped uh, by the stakes of what was happening on the internet until I saw in August 2016 a, a series of papers about how to use this artificial intelligence technique that we talked about before called NLP or natural language processing um, to uh, to monitor, surveil, and be able to and turn up and down the volume nodes in terms of distribution on social media uh, by, the, by the words that they use, the language they, they speak. And I grew up during that era, I was a comp- fairly competitive chess player as a kid, and I sort mm-hmm. of grew up during that changeover period between human-dominated chess and computer-dominated chess. And I remember these sort of old fogies of the day when I was a child, you know, talking about how uh, chess computers, sure, they're beating club players, but they'll never beat masters. Oh, they're beating masters, but they'll never beat international masters. They're being, then they won't, oh, they can be grandmasters, but they'll never beat Gary Kasparov. And then, then you know, Gary Kasparov lost and never again, you know, w- was, it, it ripped the soul out of the chess world in many respects. Uh, there was a sort of purist uh, 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 a belief that you would always be able to sort of out outrace the machines. Um, and it was evident to me as, as a kid that if you simply use this AI for training, this has became sort of popular in my uh, sort of childhood, that you could just use these engines to analyze your own games. In August 2016, when I saw that um, Berkeley's data lab was working together with Google and, and, and a number of other academic institutions like Harvard and MIT to take this, uh, this DARPA-funded concept for thought control, essentially. You, you know, this idea, because this was how they mapped birds of a feather uh, that mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. This, mm-hmm. uh, by, by the, the words they'd used, they, they had initially done this. For, uh, DARPA uh, provided tens of millions of, of dollars of funding for this language processing, this this language chunking um, capacity of AI in order to st- ostensibly to stop ISIS recruiting on, on Facebook and Twitter. You know, there's this, I, as, as part of the predicate for putting military boots on the ground in Syria, there was a, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about ISIS coming home to the U.S. and they were recruiting on Facebook and Twitter. And so the Pentagon, DARPA, and the IC developed uh, this this language spyware capacity to just map the dialectic of of how ISIS sympathizers talk online, the words they use, the images they share, the prefixes, the suffixes, the all the different community connections. And then when I saw that this was being done uh, for purposes of domestic. Instead of foreign counterterrorism, simple domestic political control, 
and uh, and and the power that it has because it really allows you. It, it is what totally changed the the internet forever because before 2016 there was not the there was not the technological capacity to do mass social media censorship that was the age of what censorship insiders like to call the whack-a-mole era censorship was reactive it was done by forum by moderators essentially everything had to be flagged manually before it could be taken down which meant millions of people had already seen it or it had already gone viral, it had already done its damage, so to speak, uh, and, and you were just sort of cutting off the back end with an act of censorship. You could never have a permanent control apparatus in that setting because there would always be a first movement, a first mover advantage to whoever posted it. What AI censorship technology breakthroughs enabled after 2016 was you know, a kind of nuclear weapon, if you will, on the censorship side, uh, to be able to end the war immediately with one, sh you know, you don't need a standing army of a hundred thousand people to censor COVID. You need, you know, you need one good developer uh, uh, working with one manic uh, social scientist who who spends her entire life mapping what Dr. Mercola says online. Uh, and you know what he's talking about this week in the news. Uh, you know what his followers are saying, what they're saying about this drug, or what they're saying about this vaccine, or um, you know what they're saying about this institution, and all of that can be cataloged into essentially a a lexicon of of how you talk, and then all of that talk can just be turned down to zero. And at the same time, they can super amplify. Uh, the the language that that they themselves are doing, so it gives a sort of godlike control to a tiny, tiny, tiny um, minority of people who can then use that to control the discourse of the entire rest of the population. And just one final thing is, what's also so terrifying about the national security state's involvement in this is when they discovered the power of this by 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 mid twenty eighteen, they began to roll it out to every other country in the world for purposes of political control there, you know, to the Ghana desk, to the, you know, to the Ecuador desk, to all South, Southeast Asia, all over Europe. And all this infrastructure liaising between the private sector companies, their content moderation teams, the computer scientists there, and the national security state was all set up ahead of the 2019 election. And in fact, it was Pentagon funded censorship firms that did all the first acts of, of censorship uh, for the, the, the COVID pandemic. These are institutions like Grafka and the Atlantic Council, but I'll sort of pause there. Thanks, that's exactly what I was looking for. I'm, I'm curious as to your uh, predictions or insights with respect to alternatives to the censorship. You know, obviously, YouTube is the major video platform, but there's many spinoffs now like Rumble and Odyssey and BitChute. And do you think that those seem to be relatively resistant, at least at this time, to censorship? So do you, do you think there's, and then we have, of course, Substack, uh, that, that these alternative platforms will gain traction or is the first comer advantage of the existing conventional platforms just so overwhelming they'll never catch up? And, and uh, then I've got a follow-up question on decentralization. Yeah. Uh, so 
it's it's tough to use the present moment as a gauge for say 12 to 18 months from now because we are currently in a low period mm-hmm. with respect to political crisis events. Uh, the COVID pandemic has essentially ended. Uh, uh, many of the censorship policies have simply been rolled back because the pandemic, you know, um, uh, is, is over, uh, essentially. Um, and uh, we're in a political lull cycle with respect to elections. This is a, a time in which there's naturally very low amounts of political pressure being placed on alternative uh, uh, social media and alternative internet institutions. And I have quite severe trepidations about what will happen uh, as political crises, um, the cycle begins anew. Uh, Many people thought that, uh, that the social media companies would be much more I don't want to say impregnable because as we discussed, they, they were, they were children in many respects of the national security state from day one, but the level of penetration uh, was relative. It, it was, it was used primarily for um, isolated foreign policy initiatives rather than this, uh, this totally super arching situation where the heads of entire uh, content, you know, Right now at Google and Facebook, the heads of the trust and safety teams are both run by former CIA uh, agents. Um, and there's a, there's a total penetration of those. But that started because of this diplomatic roadshow and this national security initiative after the 2016 election, where they very deliberately and purposely uh, uh, restructured and, and, and put an enormous amount of pressure on the tech companies to bend uh, to a co-opting by these um, these national security state institutions, we have not yet seen that for uh, for Rumble per se. Um, but there there's so many threat vectors here. I mean, you know, first of all, that that may happen. We saw that happen. You know, there's a lot of questions about what's going on. For example, at Project Veritas, with mm-hmm. you know how quickly that was ousted. Uh, James O'Keefe was ousted after his their most viral video ever on Pfizer. It was, it was about one week later when after their biggest accomplishment perhaps ever um, to it being totally overthrown. Uh, a similar thing has happened with Fox News now with Tucker Carlson. Uh, it, you know, they're, again, also the most popular cable mm-hmm. radio, uh, cable TV host in, in, the, in the country. The guy who gets three times more uh, concurrent viewership than, than, all, than CNN in the opposing spot, um, institutions can absolutely be penetrated and co-opted um, when enough pressure is applied. Uh, there is something to the great man theory of history in that respect that so, you know, um, sometimes just one person being able to withstand the pressure can make, uh, can, can make the difference. Um, but that's not yet really tested. And also the regulatory environment will play a huge role in this. There's something we, I talked about this initially by teeing up the fact that this started as a NATO thing rather than as a U.S. thing. You know, I, I refer to this as the transatlantic flank attack. This idea that when the, when U.S. intelligence or or diplomatic or military officials want to impact the internet domestically, the first thing they'll do is they will uh, they'll work with their European partners 
to change the facts on the ground in Europe, uh, which it which will themselves affect the U.S. market um, in, in a number of it, it'll especially uh, basically launder in terms of service changes on the domestic side because you need to comply with this in the U.K., France, Germany, and all of Europe. So there was Transatlantic Flank Attack 1.0 in in early 2017. Um, but we're experiencing that again right now, something called the Digital Markets Act, which is which is going to make it very difficult for Rumble to um, to maintain its posture um, for, for the next pandemic uh, uh, in in Europe. And when Rumble is forced to comply with that on the Europe side, that could, they they will have to it will have to ch- it will change what they. Um, the the entire experience of Rumble, the connectivity of it, and when you combine that with with carrot and stick techniques that can be applied to give them money for doing the right things and and ruin them if they do the wrong things, you know, Facebook and Google, Facebook was brought to its knees essentially with sixty billion dollars in boycott that that changed Zuckerberg's mind. Um, uh, time will tell uh, on this one. So. You're not too hopeful for these alternative platforms to not I'm hopeful. be hopeful in the future. You you are hopeful. I, I'm hopeful, you are. but well, <laughs> because of the pressure, um, the pressures are enormous. It, well, it's one of these things where the more and more you see what we're up against, um, the more sobering. I think you need to maintain hope in order to maintain energy, in order to maintain momentum, and with momentum. Weird things can happen, even if you're not supposed to win. Strange things break or take a life of their own or resurface. You know, uh, all the little weaknesses of the system get tested simply by, you know, a momentum here and there. Like, for example, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter is probably the reason that the GOP got over the got over the hump in doing all of these uh, congressional investigations into the government's role in censorship. They felt like they had an ally at Twitter, that they had sort of billionaire backing. Um, there was a sort of you know, water, you know, waterfall cascade uh, impact. Um, and so there are I, – I am, I am hopeful. This, like I said, I agree with your assessment that right now there is a moment of a seeming reversal. Even what I just mentioned, DHS is on the run right now. They purged their website of all their domestic censorship uh, uh, operations that they listed and were loud and proud about for for two whole years after the catastrophe of the Disinformation Governance Board in April 2022, which, you know, they already had a Ministry of Truth at DHS. They just gave one hypothetical board the wrong name. You know, they didn't call it the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security. You know, they made the mistake of calling it by the right name, and that's what ended the entire political support for for the underlying apparatus. So, you know, the importance of an Orwellian name is essential for maintaining the the political support. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, there are. Well, I'm I'm hopeful, and I'm you know I'm I'm honored to be a part of this you know this sort of. Uh, you know, rebel fleet of folks trying to take on the the, the empire behind the, the censorship situation. Um, but uh, having seen in so many iterations the the toolkit they use, 
it is a medieval torture toolkit that can do strange things. Pressure can do strange things even to great people. And so um, I'm cautiously optimistic. I would share that uh, view also. And that's why I think there hopefully is some technological innovations that can bypass that. And, you know, one that comes to mind sort of globally is a decentralization because right now when everything's controlled and they've got these, but even that, even if you had a decentralized internet, I I heard you, your uh, podcast with with another program and, you brought this the institution Cloudflare, and many people not in tech may not know what Cloudflare is, but they, in my view, control the internet. I mean, if you if yeah. you're a big operation and you don't have Cloudflare to protect you, you are gone. You are 100% gone. You cannot survive. So essentially, they're an absolutely essential component to, to staying vital in, in the internet today with all the hackers. So if they decide to not protect you, you're gone. So, I mean, even with decentralization, if you don't have Cloudflare protection, you know, maybe maybe it's not decentralization is not going to solve it. I don't know. Right. And, and Cloudflare just, uh, you know, Cloudflare Flare got political for the first time after 2016. Now, these were with quite extreme forums that they that they re- re- removed Cloudflare, Cloudflare protection for. Um, uh, but they were not violent. They were extreme, but they were politically ex- extreme. And uh, so the, the precedent has been broken there. You don't need to be a terrorist group. You know, like the Cloudflare just last year removed protection for a site called Kiwi Farms um, over this uh, basically issue around a, 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 a trans rights activist um, uh, being talked about um, very uh, you could say slanderously. There, there was there was a lot of um, you know content dialogue about this individual that was that was not would not be allowed on Facebook or Twitter or or Reddit or or other platforms. Um, and Cloudflare took note of it and nuked the whole forum. Uh, the the forum had to try to get a Russian server to get you know to to uh, to get back online. And it was First Amendment protected speech. I mean, this is it was it was nasty, but it was not illegal. And yet, you have this situation where U.S. citizens uh, had to try to get a server, you know, had to look for internet freedom in Russia because their you know their own um, uh, architecture could not be supported in, in the U.S. because of essentially a U.S. government integrated uh, backbone of the internet uh, that made a political decision that they would then be um, left to the wolves of, of DDoS attacks and whatnot because their Cloudflare you know, protection had been revoked. So I could totally see something like that being used um, if there is another pandemic, for example, and there's a, you know, there's a push for certain medical interventions that are countermeasures that, uh, that certain sites don't go along with, the uh, Cloudflare absolutely could be a weapon in that, res- in that respect. Yeah, do you think it would supersede uh, the value of a decentralization strategy with a lot of people are working on now for a decentralized uh, social media? You know, it's one of the things I love about all these questions is these are you're right at the cutting edge of, you know, uh, of of where all this all this is. Um, 
you know, there was a meme in, in, in earlier well, you're, the, you're one of the of, best out there. Why wouldn't I give you the best, good questions? You know? <laughs> yeah, there was this, idea, there was this, well, just one last thing on Cloudflare actually first is that one of the things that I found so troubling also is that the CISA, this, this DHS censorship agency that, that we talked about earlier, after the 2020 election, set up a private sector liaison uh, subcommittee call uh, for for uh, mis and disinformation policies in, in the private sector. And it was a seven person subcommittee with all of the top censorship experts at the University of Washington, Stanford, um, at twi- like, uh, uh, the, the Twitter, uh, uh, Vijaya Gotti, the, the former head of censorship at Twitter was part of the seven person board. I thought it was very uh, troubling that the, that the CEO of Cloudflare was one of the seven people on the censorship board for DHS. Um, but, uh, just to, to, I guess, proceed to what you were talking about with the decentralized internet and, uh, various challenges to it, when you move up the stack of censorship, you know, this, this idea that censorship is not just at the social media companies in terms of what you say gang banned, but they can move up the stack to, you know, uh, to cloud servers, to payment, uh, pl- to, uh, payment processors, and even to things like Cloudflare and your, your infrastructure protection, um, you know, there was this idea. There's this idea of you know, if uh, it almost comes from that sort of build your own roads uh, 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 sort of concept. But there, there's this in the early era of censorship, there was a rebuttal by by censorship advocates that if you don't like what private sector companies are doing, start your own start your own social media right, company. Right. <laughs> um, you know, build your own, build your own Google, build your own, you know, YouTube, build your own Facebook, build your own Twitter. And then what started to happen as censorship got completely insane, it went from being um, troubling to, uh, you know, disturbing to saturating to totalizing before the 2020 election was even over. And so you started to have these alternative uh, social media platforms like Gab and Parler at first, and you know there the, there were a couple of chans and forums that sort of tried to escape the content moderation uh, policies of big tech. What started to happen is those social media companies like Parler was completely destroyed. When people tried to build their own social media companies, um, when when Parler was uh, Deplatformed from basically the entire internet um, uh, when the when the president had just moved there after being kicked off Twitter, that was a that was a very, I think, um, instructive moment and one that that censorship insiders have reflected on. I should say um, many many times uh, as as a moment of should we have done that? We got we we did it, but it cost us a lot of political capital. Because what happened is, is for, for, for those who aren't familiar, you know, uh, Parler was kicked off of Amazon Web Services. They were kicked off of all of the banks. They were banned from email providers. Um, they could not hook to the Internet, essentially, to even maintain the ability to post oh, right. anything there. Their apps were taken down by Apple and Google, too. Right, right. That's right. Um, so, you know, there was this uh, – it went from build your own – social media company to, okay, build your own bank. Now you need to build your own bank <laughs> and get a banking license to, for the payment process. You need to build your own email distribution. You know, you need to, you know, build your own uh, uh, cloud servers. You need to build your own software uh, service providers. Uh, and, you know, eventually 
are, are you going to need to lay your own subsea cables across the Atlantic and Pacific oceans? Uh, because you know, Google and, and Facebook and Twitter, the social media companies didn't invent the internet. They, they are superimposed on, as we discussed, Pentagon uh, uh, infrastructure. All you know, the subsea cables were, were laid essentially by a, 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 a military industrial alliance uh, in, in the in the you know coming out of the, the telegraph era. You know this this you know in order to con- to connect a world wide web through through fiber optics. So you, are you going to need to if you want a decentralized? I mean, just I'm, I'm trying to imagine you know um, ten thousand uh, you know upstart bloggers and Substack, uh, you know, news, uh, newsletter aficionados, you know, diving to the bottom of the Atlantic to lay cables just so that they could post their opinions about, you know, um, well, that, that technology is not going to happen for sure. That's, that's, but, you know, we do face a potential Orwellian dystopia. There's no question about it. I mean, we're in a law right now, as you mentioned, it's obvious. But inevitably, anyone who has studied this and been a student of this last experience we went through, it's just beyond obvious that there's going to be another crisis, whether it's a pandemic or another a war or some or some uh, ostensible uh, international catastrophe, shades of 9-11. Who knows? I mean, these guys know. We don't know. We're not we're not privy to that information, but it's, it's inevitable. It's going to be something. So when that comes, I mean, th- this is the when we have these low periods, it's time. It's this time to recoup and kind of reckon, uh, re- reconsider what we're going to do because it's going to come. You got to be prepared. I was a Boy Scout. You know, their their motto is "Be prepared." So from your deep understanding of their strategies as a political insider, do you have any recommendations on what to do to prepare for this next inevitable crisis? Right. Well, the number one thing that could be done immediately if there is a political will to do it and there there well i'll get to that question secondly is if you simply rip out the government funding through the use of say like right now there's a republican controlled house the uh the advantage of the house is that it controls um appropriations you know the 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 purse strings of the federal government uh if if the house appropriations committee took seriously um, the government subsidization of censorship networks in the private sector, uh, you could essentially defund the speech police. All this stuff is supported. Even though we talked about, for example, on the AI side, it only takes one you know, good you know, uh, you know, uh, coder uh, to be able to uh, take out an entire political philosophy. The fact is, is uh, they can only do that job because of an army of social science folks um, across 45 different U.S. colleges and universities who get paid. And there are tens of thousands of them who are paid through the National Science Foundation and through uh, essentially DARPA grants and, and, and State Department grants, uh, but primarily the National Science Foundation, um, to subsidize the industry of mapping communities online as a matter of social science, but then providing that to the computer scientists to censor it. You could, so my foundation, uh, Foundation for Freedom Online is, has, is detailed $100 million just in the past 18 months 
that have gone from the federal government institutions directly into social media censorship, you know, uh, insiders, the, the, the jobs it's, it's a censorship is not an act anymore. It's an industry and you can, you can cripple their capacity. You know, they call this capacity building when you pump it full of, of money, you, you, you know, you go from having a couple people do it to, to tens of thousands of people doing it. The, the censorship capacity is built on a, an infrastructure of an industry that relies on government to uh, to pay for it, and that relies on on government to uh, to to spearhead uh, their their penetration into the institutions. Uh, right now, there's about eight different congressional committees who are all trying to solve this problem from from different aspects. I've personally briefed, I think, eight different congressional committees, and just to, just. And I'm sorry for the, the lengthy answer, but this, I think, will help sort of elucidate how I see the solution side of it. Um, you've got the weaponization subcommittee under Jim Jordan, judiciary, oversight, House Homeland Security, science, space and technology, energy and commerce. Um, and, and a couple others, all of them are looking at, at, at the issue from from different areas of how their own departments can be reined in. Um, but I would say only a few of those committees are taking it seriously enough to pursue the issue deeply and where that will shake out remains uncertain. Just one last thing on that, if, if I may, because this will sort of bring it back to, to something very impactful and, 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 and tangible here is uh, the, the, the DHS government censorship bureau that we talked about, CISA, it, it worked with dozens of social media companies and private sector cutouts essentially to launder censorship from the government into the private sector. But pri the, the institution it worked with more than anyone was the, was the University of Stanford, the Stanford Air and Observatory in particular. And uh, Jim Jordan's weaponization subcommittee just subpoenaed Stanford for what I call, you know, the most, you know, the perfectly preserved First Amendment crime scene. Stanford meticulously kept logs of all of its censorship activities with government officials for the COVID-19 pandemic and for two election cycles. Every single COVID, they detailed 66 narratives that they censored online having to do with everything about vaccines, uh, uh, efficacy of masks, um, uh, opposition to, to lockdown mandates. Okay. And then they had a fourth category for, for conspiracy theories, basically anything that someone said about the World Economic Forum or Bill Gates. They had not 66 posts, 66 narratives, each comprising tens of millions of posts that were all censored around the world, but here in the, but here in the U.S. by this essentially intelligence community laid in private sector, government-funded private sector network that worked Hand, that, that was that was the, the twin sister of the Department of Homeland Security. And when they were subpoenaed by Jim Jordan's weaponization subcommittee last month, they are now um, they are refusing to comply with that subpoena. And just mm -hmm. last week, Jim Jordan fired off basically a nasty gram uh, to, to them uh, uh, for with, withholding, you know, their, for, for not complying with the subpoena. But now it's like the stakes keep getting escalated because the justice, this justice department um, 
you know, who's going to enforce that subpoena? Right. You know, you've got, right. you know, uh, the, Steve Bannon, you know, regardless of your opinion of him, just got in, indicted for not complying with a subpoena because, you know, and it's, it's fairly obvious what the Justice Department, um, you know, th- thinks of him as an individual. Um, but is, is this Justice Department going to uh, pursue criminal penalties against Stanford for withholding uh, congressional a congressional subpoena for their government? You know, they're not, it, this is for their government because they were the formal partners. They had a formal partnership with the Department of Homeland Security. That stuff should be FOIAable, first of all. You shouldn't even need a subpoena for it. The only reason you can't FOIA is because they laundered it through Stanford holds the records rather than DHS. I tried to FOIA that from from DHS, and DHS says we don't have it, even though we they were our communications. So you know this is the way the CIA structures a, a, you know a, a, you know a, <laughs> an operation you know through through a web of cutouts and offshore banks, and so you can never really get transparency. But they're doing that for the censorship industry at home. And so, you know, because they're behind it. Right. So so this is the issue now is, you know, I I gave a presentation uh, to a a high, sorry, last thing is, is, you know, I gave a presentation on on this about a year and a half ago to, um, uh, to a a former uh, house speaker, very, very senior, very thoughtful um, uh, 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 individual who's curious about the the censorship issue and wanted to, a briefing. I did a six-hour briefing, uh, like 152 slides in the, in the deck. And at the end of it, I said, and that's why censorship is the most important issue of our time. And, and he, he sort of paused and thoughtfully reflected on that statement and said, actually, uh, I think it's number two. Number one is rule of law and the justice mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. the time, you know, this is like May 2022. And at the time, I thought, well, I get that that's an issue too, but uh, you know, how can you even have a you know this Justice Department thing if you don't have freedom of speech? Uh, and but as as time has gone by in that intervening space, uh, I've seen the wisdom of that uh, of that reflection because um, to even um, pursue freedom of speech presupposes um, institutions that uh, that that will support that and if the system itself at its and its basic rules and legal layer can stop you even if you win the persuasion game i mean this is what we define autocracy as this mm-hmm. is what we define mm-hmm. sort of third world strongman's as and as the justice department itself has you know is indicting a former president is you know is doing very strange things you know with uh breaking centuries of precedent centuries have been of precedent have been broken in just the past couple months um whether they will continue to raise the stakes um is is now a terrifying open issue and the fact that it's their inside guys who are running the censorship situation means there may be other tactics that need to be pursued here which is why i i talked about simply going to the appropriations committee and zeroing it out. So you don't even need to enforce subpoenas necessarily. It's interesting. You say that because almost everything you, you, you cleverly dialogued about supports that 
it probably wouldn't be effective. I mean, this is clearly a powerful Achilles heel. If you could cut the funding, you could could stop it. But you've got the national security state who has absolutely circumvented the rule of law. Yes. So, I mean, how can you implement that? It's like, it seems to me almost impossible in in that type of setup. Well, it's sort of, you know, this is one of these things where, you know, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, you know, I was sort of calling that the, the deus ex muskina. You know, who would have thought that one day, out, you know, we had a silicon curtain that descended over American communications from for four years, basically, you know, so 2016 election happened, 2017 was basically a year of infrastructure development and um, and consensus building for the censorship industry. 2018 is when it really hit and started to saturate the market. From 2018 to 2022, you had an impenetrable phalanx of, of, of unified lockstep censorship, totally impenetrable. And it, you know, it was almost like that, you know, what are you gonna do? You're gonna build your own bank, you're gonna, mm-hmm. and, and then one day out of nowhere, um, the world's richest man um, decides to spend $44 billion uh, to buy probably the most influential political discourse platform on the internet and uh, instantaneously create a kind of vacuum effect because now you actually could have political figures um, talking about political issues. You could, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating is the censorship industry planners and insiders like to talk about how social media narratives um, create law, you know, create laws and statutes. You know, for the in, in the during the pandemic, for example, the Stanford censorship squad um, talked about um, uh, how to influ- how to how to influence the Ohio State Legislature's. Uh, uh, ban they, they they passed a bill banning vaccine mandates at ohio state university uh state institutions you know this is the time where vax mandates were being rolled out in colleges and universities around the country uh they explicitly plotted to stop the ohio bill the the, the state legislature from passing a bill by stopping the ability of of, of hashtags to influence state assembly members uh they they are intensely aware that simply being able to articulate something uh, is is what can get members of Congress or members of state legislatures to pass to to change the to change the rule of law. Um, and so, I guess what what I'm trying to build towards here is you, you've got the situation where hopefully we can you can you can one one even though it may look hopeless with the national security state's saturation of these things, uh, in some sense, you you are going to need a faction of that on board. You, know, you are going to need some, you know, some great, great, great man or woman or, or, or resilient network within the national security state to side with the forces of freedom. Um, and sometimes that can, that can come from a totally unexpected source. I mean, the fact that Joe Rogan is now, uh, you know, it went from sort of being known as, as center left to, you know, talking about, uh, you know, uh, talking about voting for Ron DeSantis. I'm not trying to make this a political thing, but you've seen this, you've seen a shift from highly influential people 
even in the midst of this. Jeff Bezos, you know, recently started, you know, uh, talking like um, uh, sort of started to tilt into this axis in, in, in weird ways uh, due to recent events. You never quite know. And mm. and sometimes all it takes, you know, the deus ex machinas do exist. You can't count on them. Um, but, you know, you sometimes one weird roll of the dice can flip an entire institution on its head and that can create a, a rolling snowball. It's never over. You know, there's, it's, it's always an evolutionary arms race. Um, but you know, there, there are, there are strange rumblings now and you know, the, the task is simply now to persuade as much as we can. What you're doing with your foundation. That's you're the executive director, right? Foundation for freedom online. Yes. What, 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 what strategies are you advocating to do that? Well, uh, so, so the censorship industry was built as a so-called whole of society uh, effort. You know, this was language from the Department of Homeland Security to organize a so-called, you know, whole of society. You know, they, they said uh, misinformation online is a whole of society problem and it requires a whole of society solution. And they meant something very specific by that. They meant four types of institutions had to all seem together as uh, fused together as a seamless whole. And those were those four categories were government institutions, private sector institutions, civil society institutions, and news media and fact-checking institutions. And they would all play different roles in a censorship industry. Government would provide funding and, and sort of coordination. Uh, the private sector would actually do the dirty work of, of the censorship itself, and it would also dedicate funds through corporate social responsibility. Civil society would do all the the this is universities, NGOs, academia, foundations, nonprofits, and activists would all do various uh, sort of you know uh, research you know to basically spy on you and the words you use to to you know give to the, the to help the so the private sector censor and then the news media and fact checking would put pressure on the institutions and would do the sort of Stasi like reporting. So you know what. what what FFO is trying to educate people on are all the different ways that a whole of society um, uh, freedom co uh, coalition can be assembled in the same way that a whole society censorship coalition was assembled uh, in, in beginning in 2017. So that is so there is a role in freedom for for government, for private sector, for civil society, and for news media and fact checking orgs. Although. <laughs> we'll just call it news media. There's fact checking is basically a product of government contracts, so it's it's all that that space is all is is all captured. And frankly, I'm not sure that I would even want such a thing to exist. Although Musk is trying to do that with obviously, there's simply debunking information is is an important thing, um, but you know not not for the purpose of censoring, in my view. But uh, so uh, you know, we can talk about all, all four of those planks, but essentially what, what FFO tries to do is tries to point out all the different ways that um, you know, legislatures and the, and the government can do this, that the government departments can be restructured, um, that, that, uh, that civil society institutions can be established, as FFO is, um, and they, that, you know, that news media can, can create a journalism beat for freedom, which is now happening, thanks in part to things like the Twitter files and, and, the, and, and other um, institutions taking note. Well, that's great. So um, how can people find more about the FFFO or the Foundation for Freedom Online? 
Yep. So thanks. So, so we're at foundationforfreedomonline.com. It's one word. And you can follow me online at Mike Ben Cyber on for, Twitter. Is it, is it for freedom or foundation freedom? Foundation for freedom online. It's, it's, it's long, but um, yep. But it's just, okay. uh, just it that. Works. And um, yep. But uh, no, thank you so much for the, this discussion today. You're, you have one of the keenest mm, uh, understandings of the crux of the battlefield right now um, that, that I've uh, had the pleasure of talking to. And so I think you, you uh, I'm, this has been a, a, a very fun conversation for me. Well, thank you for those kind words, but <laughs> I was forced to do it. It's not by choice, I can assure you. But, you know, when you've got the president in the White House calling you out, the head of the National Institutes of Health by name specifically, right. you know, you you seek, you know, my, my whole approach to healthcare or health in general is to treat the foundational cause of the problem. So that's what we're trying to do, get to the cause. What is it? How can we fix this? You know, and, you know, that's that's what, and I love tech too. Uh, so, you know, my passion, you know, <laughs> that and health. So, you know, that's why I'm really interested in this issue and it's affected me personally. So I really appreciate everything you're doing. Uh, we need a lot of leaders like you, a lot of smart people who are committed to freedom and resisting censorship uh, because this, this country is so foundationally great. If you think of the people who started sacrificed their very lives so we can have freedom. I mean, a lot of us forget that. And, they gave their lives for this and it was a tough battle. And, and I think it was a Ben Franklin. I forget what it's, no, I, I had a thought of what it was, but it, if, if you're complacent about that, you're going to lose it. I think, I think it was Franklin. It's, I, I can't remember his quote. Something oh, yeah, yeah. Was. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And foundation for freedom online.org or com, com? Dot com. Okay. Dot perfect. Com. All right. Well, you keep up the good work, Mike. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to uh, uh, maybe collaborating with you in the future or at least seeing you achieve some of these goals because it's, it's a great, great mission. Likewise. Thanks for your time, and have a great day. All right. You too.